welcome back to another episode of Gatehouse Insights. Today, I am joined by Niti, who is the head of legal at Philip Morris. Today, she is going to dive deeper into the topics of how to deal with imposter syndrome, the benefits of being vulnerable in the workplace, how to deal with disappointments and setbacks, and much, much more. Make sure you subscribe to the Gatehouse Legal Recruitment YouTube channel to catch it all. So I want to begin with what made you pursue a career in law and your experience in both Australia and the UK and how you've ended up where you're at at the moment. Yeah, sure. So actually, it's funny because when I um, was at school, I had no intention of doing law and I kind of uh, fell into it in large part because I, I'd originally decided I wanted to do languages and and commerce because I loved economics at school and then uh, decided "Mm, you know my Mandarin wasn't really going very far very quickly so I was like "Mm, maybe I won't do that anymore and so I changed my mind and so I was like "Mm, what can I do instead of arts and you know it's like well I like humanities so maybe I'll do law and so it was kind of an accident and then got to uni and loved law and really disliked university economics and because it was stats more than anything else. And so, you know, did my law degree and uh, at the end of that was like, okay, well, what, what now? And, you know, at law school, you get told the next step is you go join a big firm and you go do that if you can. Right. And so that's what I did. So I joined Ashurst, uh, which was Blake's at the time in Melbourne. And it sort of was a bit of a reality shock the first few months of being in law firms. I I don't think law school really prepares you for what legal practice is going to be like. And I just was not expecting A to be, you know, doing so much proofreading and just things that, you know, possibly a little bit mundane (laughs) um, on a daily basis. And then I also was not expecting the lifestyle change and so that really hit me quite hard and in those first few months I was like I don't know that I want to do this like why am I here what am I doing and so I really questioned being at firms and I sort of started telling myself I don't think I'm going to do this for more than a couple of years and then I'll go and do something else and so that was the plan and um, so I was at Ashurst for about three three years including my articles here and including a secondment at ANZ and I think I was on holidays just before I went to ANZ and I was in the UK and I was sitting with a friend in her apartment in London and um, I was like I don't know what to do like I need to do something different I'm a little bit bored of work and I also want to get away and you know just do something else. And she was like, why don't you move to London? And so I thought, why not? Like, there's nothing holding me back from moving. And so I literally went back home and started looking for stuff. And I thought, you know what, the easiest thing to do now is to get a job in a law firm because it's going to be far easier to do that than trying to move in-house or something from Australia. So I applied for um, jobs and got a job at Allen and Overy and went 
and join them the following year. And it was, you know, my time in London was amazing. Like it was, um, it was kind of work hard, play hard and, you know, definitely extremes of both. Um, but I actually struggled a little bit with law firm life in London. Like I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the substantive work and it was incredibly challenging and interesting. But I, had, I came across a few individuals that I didn't really gel with from a leadership perspective. And so, you know, they often say that you learn more from bad managers than you do from good. I definitely learned a lot in London. So, so, you know, I had some pretty, you know, pretty awful experiences with um, managers there. And I think because I was from Australia too, they have this real attitude that you're from Australia, you're only going to be here for a few years and therefore we're going to use you as much as we can, right? Like, in fact, I think in one appraisal, I think I was told that as an Australian, you need to work harder and prove yourself more than people who are from here. So that was really the attitude. And so again, I said to myself again, write a couple of years, get a few years under the belt in the UK of private practice experience, and then we'll move on again. And then I was interviewing and stuff with places and then the GFC happened. I was like, oh my God, now there are no jobs. <laughs> so then... 2008? The 2008 GFC? Yeah, 2008. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it was lucky at the time I was sent on a secondment to Citigroup, which ended up being fantastic. And it was the thing that really, you know, made me decide that eventually I was going to move in house at some point. But it just wasn't to be at that point. Um, I mean, London went through a horrible period with the GFC. And so there were literally no jobs anywhere. So then um, I had in the meantime met my uh, now husband in the UK and so we decided okay a few more years and then we'd move back to Australia. So I decided okay well I'll stick it out until I go back to Australia then. <laughs> and then we uh, decided to move back and my husband said to me mm, let's not move straight to Melbourne let's go to Sydney. Your firm has now opened an office in Sydney so it'd be so awesome you could move with them and we could be in Sydney. And really, he didn't want to live with my parents, which is kind of what we were going to have to do before we bought a house if we moved to Melbourne, right? And so he was like, it's a great stepping stone. We should just go to Sydney. And I was like, oh, I really don't know that I want to go to Sydney. I want to go back home and I want to move in the house. And he's like, no, 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 this is a fantastic idea. So anyway, I was convinced in the end that, okay, we'll take, <laughs> take another job in private practice and move to Sydney. And so... Off we went to A&O in Sydney and I quickly realised I can't do this for too much longer since, yeah. you know, it's just too much now. Like I've been wanting to be out of private practice for about eight years by that stage. I have to get out. <laughs> and so that's when I decided, no, I need to move back to Melbourne and started looking for in-house jobs. And that's how I ended up where I am now at Philip Morris. And how long have you been at Philip Morris now? It's been about eight and a half years. Wow. Yeah, so it's a long time. And wow. it's interesting, when I first came across the um, job at Philip Morris, I was like, mm, hey, no, tobacco. Mm, I'm not, you know, I wasn't a smoker. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. And then 
I saw it again. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just go for the interviews and just do some interview practice and see how it goes. And But I'm not going to take it even if they offer me a job. That's what I had in my head, right? I went to the first interview and I remember coming back because um, we were staying with my parents at the time. And I remember coming back and going, I am so confused. I really don't want to take a job at Philip Morris if they offer me one. But that was actually a really good interview and the people were amazing and they stay there for such a long time, which to me, you know, coming from law firms where it's so transient in some ways, seem to be phenomenal because it's like if people stay, that means they're treated well, right? And so I had three interviews like that. And by the third one, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm so confused now. Like, I, I think I'm going to change my mind. But, you know, and it was, it was, it was really surreal. Like, it was just a bit strange. But, yeah, but in the end, it, you know, it was a good decision. They have treated me well over the years. And the work is very interesting, very challenging. And yeah. I've learned a lot, you know, including about resilience, because working in an industry like this, you have to learn okay, a little bit about judgment and, you know, being, being strong, I guess, in the face of that. I love how you, at the very beginning of your, I suppose, uni degree, you're like, I'm not doing law. And 16 and a half years later, you're still in it. Like, it's, it's incredible. Like, I know. It's awesome. You must love it. I, I do. Look, I really, I really do enjoy um, the law. And it's, it's weird. I think in private practice, I think one of the things, like I enjoyed the work, but I always had this feeling of, am I really doing law? Because this is not really what I studied because you end up doing so much, you know, um, it's like contractual work and drafting and stuff like that. But there's no, not too much interpretive work, which is kind of what you, in, what you do when you're at law school. And so working where I am now, I think, you know, I've had that for the last eight years where a lot of it is back to what I was doing at law school in some yeah. ways. And so, yeah, and I, I do enjoy it. Yeah. Now, 2020 was the year you learned who you are. And, and instead of, I suppose, New Year's resolutions, which most of us do, and goal setting, you decided to focus on continual personal growth for 2021. So that's your, your growth journey for this year. Could you yep. share with us what actually shifted for you in 2020, which has put you on a personal growth journey this year? Yeah, absolutely. So um, last year was challenging in many ways, as it has been for most people. Um, I came back from maternity leave after my second child in March. So I literally was getting ready to go back into the office, getting my son settled at childcare, and then the weekend before I was due back at the office, uh, my company sent out a global email saying we're all working from home for Monday. And so I started back at work at home. And I decided to also not send my son to childcare because he had no immunity system. So I was like, well, I'll keep him at home. So he was at home with me. And then a couple of weeks later, as you know, we went into uh, – our first lockdown in Melbourne. And so my daughter was also at home with me and she's uh, she was in grade one last year. So doing remote learning from home. And 
uh, my husband's a real estate agent, so he was out and about, at least for the first lockdown. Later on, obviously, he couldn't, he couldn't go out either. But so he was out and about. So I was juggling two kids plus returning to work, not having any idea really what had happened over the last many months, not having seen my team for those, you know, for that period of time. And it was, it was challenging. It was rough. And I found myself needing to find a place to, or an avenue for being able to share what I was feeling and going through and some of the struggles. And so I, I actually, in that time, turned towards LinkedIn, which I'd used a little bit before, but not with any intent, in like not intentionally, like I'd used it every so often to write something. And so I kind of used it as a really weird kind of journal, like a very public journal, but, you know, it was kind of just, okay, this is how I'm feeling today. I'm going to put that out there in the world. And I said to someone the other day, it was kind of this indirect way of talking to my work colleagues because I wasn't seeing them on a daily basis. So normally you're able to rant and rave about things, you know, that have happened to you, but and it's you just can't do as much of that when you're virtual right because you don't want to be wasting people's time and so it was my way of kind of indirectly talking to people and I started doing that and I remember one day and I can't remember what what it was that I'd written or who it was that said this but someone reached out to me and they said to me you know that thing that you wrote today I really needed to hear that today I, feel, I have been really struggling and it just made me feel less alone. And that was a big turning point for me. And I went, wow, okay, there's, there's more to me writing than just um, thought dumping. You know, this is actually making an impact on people. And so, and then I had more and more of those experiences and, and through that, I, I don't know, because I was writing so much, I was reflecting so much as well at the same time. And so I started reflecting on my day and I would notice more things during my day. I, you know, normally you're running around, you know, you get the kids ready in the morning, you race them to school and you're off to work and then you race back to pick everyone up and then you get dinner ready and then you get them into bed and then it's like oh okay I can enjoy my evening now for a couple of hours you know <laughs> in between washing up and getting everything ready for the next day you know but all of a sudden with the kids at home even though it was still you know it was crazy because of remote learning and everything that I was juggling it meant I could actually like I could actually watch my daughter doing her remote learning and I could go okay this is what's going on with you and this is what you need and this is where you need my support and these are the things I haven't noticed yeah. you know for the past however long and so it really made me stop and just think about what she needed as well and equally what I needed and I realized very quickly that I needed to exercise self-care you know it was just I couldn't be um, operating on all cylinders unless I had put in some time for me so you know yoga became a daily part of like it became a part of my day and exercise as well and eating well all these things that just help sustain me during the day and so it, it's 
it kind of started through writing, but it then kind of transferred itself into just how I went about my day. And, you know, through that, you know, always heard about gratitude, for example, you know, and you know you should do gratitude, right? Like you know it's the right thing to do. But life gets in the way of these things quite often. Um, but last year, when my daughter was struggling, particularly later in the year, when we went through the, I think the second lockdown, or I think when, maybe even when she went back to school in between. And I was like, okay, we're going to start doing gratitude every day. You're going to tell me three, three things that you're grateful for. And do you know the amazing thing? I actually got to know more about her day at school through asking her what she was grateful for than if I'd asked her, what did you do at school today? Mm. Right? Because it's an indirect way of asking her the same question. And so there were things like that that I guess just made me shift my own perspective on, on, on life and what's important. So that was a very long-winded way of sort of explaining what the year was. But, that, yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of how it evolved for me over yeah. the year. I like 2020, um, it was a struggle for some, but I think in many ways it was a real eye-opener for many of us. Um, and as you've gone through that journey, it's, you know, you've made some changes which are, will be for the better going forward. A hundred percent. I, you know, I think I will look back on this year and or last year and think that it was definitely a life-changing year for me. It's it's allowed me to step into myself more than I had done before. I've um, become more comfortable with being vulnerable, for example, through talking about how I'm feeling from a mental health standpoint or things like that. It's enabled me to develop a um, a broader range of connections as well, which I never thought I would do in a year of isolation and being at home. But, you know, through engaging with people uh, on LinkedIn, I've actually managed to make all these amazing connections, which I'm, I, you know, and I, when we talk offline and, and things like that, so it's not just all online. But, you know, these are these are people I think I will remain connected with for quite some time to come yeah so yeah definitely it's definitely been a life-changing year for me now I want you to move us on to imposter syndrome um because it is something that made you stop and think you know do your thoughts actually matter and whether other people would find your thoughts interesting now a lot of us have these these thoughts you've had we've we've had it I've had it I mean um but how did you not let imposter syndrome get in your way because you've gone out and you've just done it and um, you're doing an amazing job so but yeah thank you you dive deeper into how you dealt with imposter syndrome and how you push through it yeah it's a it's a strange one because initially when I was writing it was kind of just you know uh, for my existing connections right it was like friends family colleagues ex-colleagues you know I wasn't thinking any broader than that. And so within that sort of safe-ish environment, I thought, well, whatever, I can share whatever, and it doesn't matter. But then when I started getting more and more people connecting, I was like, okay, now, like, the stuff that I'm writing, does it really matter to people, like you like you just um, said? And I struggled with that for a while. I was like, mm, I 
not sure. And I would spend ages agonizing over these posts and like, you know, and then you'd like wait and you'd be like, oh my God, is anyone going to react? Is anyone going to say anything? And then the time, you know, the minute you got like the first reaction, be like, oh, thank God, you know, at least someone has registered that this matters, right? Um, but interestingly, I read a book because I started doing a, a thought leadership course last year. I did a lot of courses and lots of things last year. So I did this, started doing a thought leadership course and they had this book. And in that book, one of the things they were talking about was, do your thoughts matter? And this whole um, idea that people feel that their thoughts don't matter. And I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I've been thinking. And then this book was in front of me and talking about exactly the same topic. And I was like, I've got to get out of my head. You know, what's important is that I'm sharing my perspective, right? And so when I write, I tend to write in the first person most of the time, and I tend to write through story because my view is that every one of us has stories because they're what make up our lives, right? And you can create a story out of having gone for a walk and having just, you know, had that realization of, wow, things are beautiful around me. I've got to stop to enjoy what's around me, like, you know, nature and the sun, the warmth of the sun, the feel of the sun, all of those sort of things. They're a story in themselves, right? But we don't often recognize it as being a story. And, but interestingly, they're the things that resonate with people because everyone's done that. Everyone's been for a walk and gone, I have felt like that and stopped and gone, wow, I've got to be in this moment, you know? And so I think it was when I started to step back from it and go, okay, it's my perspective. They're my stories, but they don't need to be earth shattering stories about, you know, adversity or whatever. They can just be what's happened that day or what my daughter has said to me that day or what my son's now doing as a baby or whatever it is, you know. So I started getting out of my head a little bit, you know, and just trusting that what I was putting out there meant something to me and that when I got those responses, not that I needed validation, but when I got those people coming back to me saying, thank you for sharing that, or that really helped me, or that was a light bulb moment for me, that was all I needed. And it could be one person saying that on one of 20 posts, right? But that one statement was sufficient because it was like, okay, I'm making an impact on someone else. And not only am I making an impact on someone else, I'm helping myself in the process. Thing I love about your posts is they're relatable. Like I can relate to them. Like even though I haven't been through, I don't have children, but I can still relate to your post. And I'm like, I can see how that. Oh, I can relate to it. And so, um, and the way you write them is really good because it it makes you like you put a little sentence. It's something really capturing, and then you have to read more, and then you end up reading it. So the way you write it, it is a story. It's it's amazing. So thank you. Yeah keep on sharing because um i love seeing them when they they pop up oh thanks so much thank you (laughs) that's fun (laughs) um i was wondering whether you could speak more about vulnerability because we often think if we show that we're vulnerable we are weak we are not good enough 
our colleagues, our uh, managers, they won't respect us. Mm. But what have you found personally to be the benefits of speaking up and being vulnerable? Yeah, so I think vulnerability can take a few different forms and I've sort of experienced it from quite a few different angles now. Um, I, growing up, uh, never used to be a sharer. Like I wouldn't tell anyone how I was feeling or, you know, even when I met my now husband, he was like, can you just open up and share more? You know, I'm sick and tired of having to ask you to tell me how you're feeling, (laughs) you know, and so... um, I just didn't, like it just wasn't part of my DNA at the time to do that. But I think I did grow up with this idea that talking about your feelings and talking about mistakes and things like that, you know, or not knowing the answer was a sign of weakness. And I, you know, and I have to say law firm environments didn't really help that because if you did say you didn't know, it didn't always go down very well, right? Um, and, and I think in that environment, you know, it's, it's full of people that don't know how to be vulnerable most of the time. But uh, for me, the big turning point was um, a few years ago, I, between my two kids, had some miscarriages. And the first miscarriage, I was reflecting the other day, I don't think I would have told my boss or told work if it hadn't have been for the fact that I was supposed to go on a conference a week after. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to tell him because I don't want to have this, you know, baby pass whilst I'm at this conference. So I need to tell him because I need to be at home. I cannot be somewhere else right now. I'm going to need support. And so, if but if it hadn't have been for that, I probably wouldn't have told him. I probably would have said, I've, you know, got a cold. I'm take some sick leave and just stay at home and then would have gone on through the next week and months just pretending that everything was okay and that I was fine where really I wasn't and it took me a good I don't know I think about two to three months to feel anywhere near normal again and even then you know not quite back to normal but at least that I was able to go through the day not just being on autopilot which is kind of what I did for a few months And then um, I had another miscarriage the year later. And that year, I'd just been promoted into my current role. So I was now heading up a team. I had a new group of peers. And um, so I really felt I had to impress them, right? And then I fell pregnant. And then I found out I'd miscarried. And I was supposed to go traveling that weekend. I remember going in for my appointment and the OB telling me, and it's kind of a... It's a weird moment when you see your OB's face and the face just changes and you just know that something's not right. And um, so I had the surgery and everything that day. And then two days later, I was off to South Korea on a work trip. So I didn't have time to grieve, nothing. I kind of told myself in my head I was okay. And because I'd been through this before, so I was okay. And I had all, you know, and I'd said to myself, I knew this was a possibility because it had happened last year. I'd almost talk myself into believing that that's what was going to happen again, right? Because I didn't want to hope too much. And so I sort of told myself I was okay and went through this whole period of a couple of months just trying to, you know, build a team and deal with the workload and everything else whilst having this thing looming in the back of my head. And I had been working with someone on mental health awareness at work and 
and uh, she was at the office one day and she said to me, out of the blue, in the middle of our conversation, Nishi, I just wanted to ask you, are you okay? And I paused, like I was kind of in shock because I was like, why did you just ask me that? And then it was like, no one's really asked me that. Yeah. And then I was like, I, I'm not okay. I'm so not okay. And I broke down in that moment and it was kind of floodgates of not just the miscarriages but kind of life in general you know like I'm going to dump everything on you now in, in this space of the next half an hour but it was amazing after having talked to her I felt so much lighter like just unburdened and I realized in that moment how powerful talking about these things can be and it really shifted something dramatically in me um, that I, you know, grown up with, you know, this is like decades of stuff and, um, and conditioning. And it really started me on this journey of thinking, do you know what, I need to talk about these things. And after I went through these experiences, I'd sort of said to myself, I need to talk about these things within a work context because they're not things that are spoken about. And yet so many people go through these sort of experiences but we just don't know and and it'll and it will affect how they present at work right so um I sort of said that to myself and I, I kept trying to build up the courage to talk about it at work and in the end I ended up writing an article about it instead and posting it on LinkedIn and it took me a long time to press that post button I'd, I'd written it in my head so I was very quick to write it um, I remember I, I was um, one day I was in the shower and like, just talking out loud, like this story that I'd written in my head. And my daughter's like, what are you doing, mummy? Like, who are you talking to? I'm like, oh, I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> no, it's just, yeah. it's just what I'm saying now. Exactly. It's a, I was like, you know, okay, it's written itself now, but now I have to press post. And that was a scary moment because I was like, wow, I don't know where this story is going to go, who's going to read it or see it. But it was such a relief when I did press post and just put it out there. And then some of the messages I got back and some of the stories that people shared with me, some publicly, some, you know, through messages and stuff, were beautiful. And it was through that that I kind of also realized, you know what, there's, there's so much value in talking about our own personal struggles. And that doesn't just mean adversity. It also means, you know, if you've made a mistake, owning up to that mistake. Because, you know, I, I truly believe if you can't own up to your own mistakes and you have a team underneath you, they won't own up to theirs either because you haven't given them permission to do that. You haven't role modeled it yourself, right? So in order for people to have this sort of psychological safety, which is something we talk about a lot nowadays, I think this is part of it. You know, you need to be authentic with people. You need to share how you're feeling. So last year was a great example of that. Like there were times during the year I said to my team, I am having an awful day. Mm. I cannot cope. I am not coping. There's too much going on. Um, I'm going to need to take some time out or whatever it is. And, you know, and I said the same to them too. You know, if you are having a tough day, let me know. I don't expect you all to be on every day because that's just not reality. And 
I'm hoping that things have shifted as a result of last year when it comes to this space of vulnerability and talking about mental health in particular, um, because I do think we've moved beyond that how are you question, which you know no one ever listens to the response to, um, to something a little bit more real, I hope. So, so yeah, so that's, that's been my journey, I guess, with vulnerability. What have, you, what have you found to be the benefits of having your team being more open and vulnerable? What have you seen there? What, what's, what are the differences you've noticed in your team? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think the trust is, is the biggest one. You know, again, like psychological safety, it seems to be a little bit of a buzzword and we talk about it a lot, mm-hmm. but building trust is something that can often be quite difficult. I think people struggle with and I think through them opening up and through me opening up we've grown to trust each other and through that you know as well there's a level of transparency and so the hierarchy disappears to some extent like it's still there you know like I'm, I'm still their supervisor but you have more of a reciprocal relationship with them rather than it just being one way. And I think last year was incredibly important that I know where, knew where people were. And I think that will continue to be the case for some time because we've all had our unique struggles, whatever they might be, whether it's, you know, um, people being sick within our uh, extended family or, you know, friendship groups or whatever, or whether it is people having lost their jobs, you know, I mean, there might be people whose other halves have lost their jobs or things like that you know there's a lot that's happened in the last year and I think having that space of you know them feeling that they could share those sort of things with me I think has enabled me to also be there and be more supportive Mm. for them in those moments as well to move us on to leadership because as part of your role you also lead and manage a team from your experience what have been your top three skills you've learned over the years in managing a team uh, so I'd say that uh, trusting people is the biggest one like I said that before but I think you know you really have to trust people um, I through some negative experiences with flexible working and perceptions that came with that, um, particularly after becoming a parent, um, I realised quite early on that I need to trust my team, you know. And I basically said to them, I'm going to be working from, this is before COVID and everything, obviously, but I'm going to be working from home one day a week. You know, you are more than welcome to do the same. Um, I only ask that these couple of days we have in the office together, any other day, uh, you know, you choose whatever you want to do. And I'm going to trust you to get your stuff done as and when and how you want, right? So you just do what you need to do. And I think that has paid itself back in dividends because, you know, the gratitude and the um, appreciation for having that trust bestowed on them I think has, it, it then pays itself back through discretionary effort and things like that and loyalty, right? 
And so I think that is a really big one for me because I think that does, as I said before, create that circle of psychological safety for the team. So that's a really big one. I think the vulnerability and authenticity piece is another one. I think, you know, for me, I noticed that when I started stepping outside of my title as a lawyer and when I started doing more in the organisation that was, uh, I guess, marrying my passions with being a lawyer or being, a, you know, being an employee of the company, um, people started to pay more attention and they started to get to know me as a person and as a leader rather than just Neeti, the lawyer. And so, you know, things from flexibility to mental health to talking about recognition and, and things like that, they're all things that I started bringing with me to my job and really getting more and more involved in. And I remember there were a couple of people here and there who were like, well, you know, that's not really your job, is it? I'm like, well, it isn't. But, you know, on the other hand, I think these are the things that make you stand apart from other people. And I think often lawyers in particular can get in this, um, not a rut, rut's not the right word, but they can sort of feel that you, you know, you have a job and you need to stay within the confines of that job, right? You even see it in on LinkedIn, like with people's profiles, it's very much, I am a lawyer, you know? And I'm like, okay, but there's more to you than being a lawyer, right? Like, who are you? You know, that's what I want to know. Like, you know, because this is what connects people. It's not, you're a lawyer, like it's, you know, who are you? Like, what are the traits that you possess? You know, what is your personality? What are the things that you love doing? You know, all of those sort of things. So for me, that was a really big one. And I think it's it's kind of, uh, it's really changed things for me at the organisation. Um, and I don't think that people necessarily even put two and two together and realise that that's what it is. But in my mind, I can see it. And I'm like, you know, things have changed for me since I started being more than just my role. So that's a big one. And uh, I think along with that, what else would I say? So I said trust, um, authenticity and vulnerability. And I think, you know, having people's back, right? Like, I think you've got to, you've got to keep, give people enough space to do their own thing and to learn and to grow, right? So kind of like a child when they're learning to walk, right? If you mother them too much and you stop them from falling each and every time, they're not going to learn how to walk, right? Falling is part of learning to walk. And in the same way with your team, you've got to, I think, allow them that space to do what they need to do and to make those few mistakes, but you've got to allow them to do it in an environment that is safe. And that safety comes with you being their safety net, right? So you tell them, I am here for you and I will make sure that if something happens, that I have your back because that is my responsibility. But you need to go out there and you need to try things. So don't just come to me and, you know, and ask me all the, you know, for the answers, right? Let's, and this is something I've learned over time. You know, I wasn't great at this when I first started in my role because you go from in, being in a doing role to moving to a managing role and the transition can be, you know, quite stark, particularly for lawyers because we often don't manage people until we get into these senior positions. And so I had to, I've had to learn it along the way, but I think it's really, 
it's really helped. Once I've started doing this more and more, it has helped a lot. Before we close, is there any final thought you want to leave our audience with? I think the main thing I would say is, you know, be yourself, right? I think, you know, for those, whether you're working in a corporate, whether you own your own business, I think it's really just owning who you are and um, letting that shine through because I think people underestimate the value of that human connection and it is enormous. So I would say, you know, be courageously yourself. Nidhi, you're amazing. So continue what you're doing on social and sharing your stories. They're incredible. And thank you for joining me this morning. No, thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of Gatehouse Insights draws to an end. Thank you for watching and thank you for sharing this video with your friends. And if you haven't already done so, make sure you subscribe to the Gatehouse Legal Recruitment YouTube channel where you can see more.